Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 52, Ross Perot at the Bat. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Pinch hit for whom we pinch hit. Employ nine ringers when we employ nine ringers. And today I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 17, Homer at the Bat, which first aired on February 20th, 1992. And I'm going to be talking about Ross Perot. On February 20th, 1992, the very same day Homer at the Bat first aired, he reluctantly announced on Larry King Live that he would be running for president of the United States as an independent candidate if his name appeared on ballots in all 50 states. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. We're coming to you live from the tier three exclusion zone. <laughs> but I don't want to make this all depressing. I've certainly had a few rants about it myself, so I'm going to choose to focus on something positive. We had some nice chats with some nice people and some welcome retweets after our last episode, which I think was low-key one of our best. Good episode, interesting historical event, couple of diversions, classic us. So thanks very much to everyone who was so kind as to put us out there and get in touch. It's lovely to know people are listening and enjoying. But I do have to ask you one thing, Tom, because uh, for context, I don't check the email. I, I just read Twitter. So I've, I've got to ask, um, did um, did Siobhan from Shakespeare's sister get in touch? Uh, any Anything from her at all? Might be from an at Bananarama email address. Uh, alas, no, but I will need to check my spam. OK, well, I mean, she must listen. All the cool kids listen to us, as we've uh, seen over these past few weeks, and she's, she's right there up amongst the cool list. So I'll, um, I'll just take that as her not being interested in that drink. <laughs> oh, well. But Gareth, I hear you cry. Isn't she the UK number one at February 20, 1992? And I say, yes, yes, she is. Don't remind me. It's in that eight-week run that we discussed. And then we have Wet, 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 who we've already covered. And then we've got someone I'm not mentioning. And then we've got the Pasadenas who have made a home for themselves at number four, but about whom I can't find anything very interesting to discuss except the rocking Jeff thing that I've already mentioned. So we're right down at number five with The Temptations and My Girl. Another retro one then. But why? Well, much like the previous out-of-time re-releases that we've discussed, there's a touch of movie magic in the air. For this was number one on the team sheet for the Macaulay Culkin coming-of-age movie My Girl released in the UK on February the 7th that very year. The Incredible Kulk was post-Home Alone, pre-Home Alone 2 here, and was therefore big news, though many fans were somewhat perturbed that, spoilers I guess, his character is allergic to bee stings, which cause him to, um, die. Because the film isn't actually about his character, it's about the girl he's friends with. But such was the hype around him at the time that the film's entire marketing revolved around an actor who isn't in the last quarter of the film. The song itself is a memorable slice of smooth, harmony-driven soul performed by The Temptations, but written by Smokey Robinson and one of the other miracles. And that's about it, really. Which is good, as apparently I'll need the extra time in this episode to talk about every baseball player that ever lived. (laughs) The US viewership, now brace yourself, 
This had a 15.9 Nielsen rating and a 23 share, whilst the Cosby Show had a 13.2 rating and a 20 share. This was the very first time that The Simpsons beat a first-run episode of The Cosby Show in its time slot. Yes. So remember, when we get a celebrity episode these days that is subpar and is only there to have the name of the celebrity in the episode title, this is why it actually works. The production number for this episode is 8F13, and the credited writer, or should I say discredited writer, is the entirely made-up John Schwarzwelder, who we discussed in episode 5, Bart the First McDonald's in Moscow. He, very much in quotes, is said to be a baseball fan. The chalkboard gag is, I will not aim for the head, and the couch gag is, the family run to the couch, but all bang their heads together, rendering them unconscious, except Maggie, who makes it without issue. But what actually happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to choke to death on donuts. <laughs> we'll cover this later in Season 8, Episode 23, Homer's Enemy. But Homer, despite a penchant for gorgery, doesn't eat like a pig because they actually chew. And his duck-like method of food loading does him no favours here. And nor do Lenny and Carl, who are distracted from the Heimlich maneuver poster by a softball sign-up sheet. The power plant is coming off the back of a terrible season. Sorry, terrible seasons. But Homer is sure they'll do well, as he has a secret weapon. Tom, straight in here with a pop quiz for you. Lenny, Carl, and Charlie, in an always welcome but seldom seen appearance, try to think what the weapon could be. What do they dream up? The first one is a massive baseball glove. The second one is springs on Homer's feet, so he leaps between the bases effortlessly. And my favourite one is a laser gun, which fries everyone. Absolutely. And I don't think any of us would have been disappointed if uh, the third one had come to pass. But but there we go. Three for three, Tom. Good stuff. It's none of those things. As Bart immediately guesses, it's a homemade bat. When Homer was locked out during a thunderstorm and tried to protect himself from lightning by holding metal above his head and sheltering under a tall tree, lightning, for some reason, struck the tree and knocked a branch off, which Homer whittled into his wonder bat after putting his homemade football on hold. And for once, despite going about it entirely the wrong way, he's made a quality product, with which he guarantees he will hit 3,000 home runs in the coming season. We then learn the rules of softball. You can't leave first until you chug a beer. Any man scoring has to chug a beer. You have to chug a beer at the top of all numbered innings, and the fourth inning is the beer inning. (laughs) Is it really a surprise that Homer turns out to be very good at this sport? With the plot down 5-2 against the police team, Homer reveals his bat to widespread apathy, but when he knocks it out of the park and dead centre into the forehead of an innocent picnicker, the team start to believe he's onto something, and even the kids start to look up to him. We take a whistle-stop tour of the next few games against East Springfield, where Homer delivers but misunderstands the wind direction, Fort Springfield, who Apu plays for for some reason, and who the power plant absolutely batter, and Springfield Heights, by which stage every member of the team either has or is frantically whittling a wonder bat of their own. (laughs) Including Lenny's, which appears to be a bamboo cane, Carl with the leg of a grand piano, and Charlie with an actual prosthetic leg he apparently took from his sister. But there's trouble a-brewing, and from an unlikely source. Thus far, the team has essentially been self-managing, and they've been doing a great job of it. But at Springfield Trade Center's Millionaires Club, which handily has a sign outside it reading, You must have more than this to enter. $1 $1 million, just in case you thought it was an ironic name or something, Monty Burns is talking to our old friend Aristotle Amadopoulos, 
who mistakenly brought Homer in as a motivational consultant earlier this season. Smithers mentions that the team need only beat Shelbyville Power Plants team to win the championship, and an immediately interesting wager of a million dollars is placed on that very game. Now here is where Mr. Burns gets everything wrong. Based on their form, you'd have to think Homer Ect would have no trouble handling just another local softball team. But Burns decides to cheat by bringing in professional baseball players, giving them token roles at the power plant, and encouraging them to sign up to the softball team, thus destabilizing the fantastic team he already has. And worse than that, his suggestions for said riggers are anachronistic enough that all of them are retired and dead. <laughs> Smithers is tasked with finding enough living players in a mere 24 hours, and off he goes, recruiting Jose Canseco at a baseball card convention, getting shot by Mike Shosha, whose name I spelled phonetically, <laughs> who, as it turns out, is hankering for some blue-collar work, finding Ozzie Smith at Graceland, receiving a warm welcome from Don Mattingly, and, most terrifying of all, enduring the smooth jazz stylings of the Steve Sachs trio. We don't see it, but he also gets a new security guard in Roger Clements, recruits Wade Box for a janitorial role, installs Ken Griffey Jr. as lunchroom cashier, and Daryl Strawberry as... Well, he'll make up a job for him later. But disastrously for Homer, Strawberry plays in his position and is bigger, faster, stronger and already more popular around the plant than him. Plus is a pure brown noser with Burns. This leads Homer to teach Bart a fantastic lesson for adulthood. Can't win, don't try. <laughs> Which is brought into sharp focus when Wonderbat is destroyed by a fast pitch. Of course, we don't have a show if this goes smoothly, so things take an immediate turn south when Shosha isn't interested in the softball sign-up sheet, being perfectly content to run the solid contaminant encapsulator. Burns' training methods are as antiquated as his original dream team would suggest, including hypnosis, medicine balls, and other old-timey gym doodads, plus further quackery in brain and nerve tonic. Mr. Burns is also very unhappy with Mattingly's sideburns, which apparently only he can see. Now it's time for me to cop out a bit, because it's kind of difficult to recap this next section. It's largely a training montage, and a series of little sketches around the presence of the players in Springfield, like Bart and Ralph picking sides for a baseball team, Ralph getting to pick all the major leaguers, um, and Shosha shoveling radioactive waste with Carl. It's good, it's good, watch it, basically. Um, but soon it's the eve of the game, and Burns opines that only nine separate disasters can derail him now. And here they come. <laughs> Steve Sachs is arrested by the Springfield police for the crime of being from New York, where they hear there's been a lot of murders. At the hospital, Shosha is dying of radiation poisoning, whilst Griffey gets gigantism from brain and nerve tonic. Jose Canseco plays hero by rescuing everything from a burning home. Remember this one. If it looks like it stands out, it does so for a reason, and we'll be talking about that soon. Wade Boggs is knocked out by Barney in an argument about England's greatest prime minister as is Mo, and Ozzie Smith is sucked into Springfield's mystery spot. Come game day, there are but three riggers, and Roger Clemens hasn't recovered from his hypnosis and thinks he's a chicken, so that leaves two, and we're down to one when Mr. Burns sacks Mattingly for his imaginary sideburns. But unfortunately, that one is Daryl Strawberry, who plays in place of Homer. A naturally depressed Homer busies himself with intimate scratching, while a section of the crowd harangues Strawberry. But suddenly, Mr. Burns decides to send Homer on in his place at the bottom of the ninth, as Homer is right-handed, and that's what smart managers do to win ball games, which it kind of is, but Mr. Burns is not a smart manager, and is vastly reducing the quality of his batsmen with this swap. Atop this, 
It confuses Homer with a barrage of weird signals that Homer cannot understand, leading to the ball beaning him right in the head. But it counts as a hit, and Homer wins the ball game for the plum by getting knocked out cold. <laughs> and the episode ends right there, albeit with Terry Cashman singing his song Talking Baseball, with new lyrics as Talking Softball. A version that became so iconic that Cashman says he gets more requests for that now than he does for the original. <laughs> it also includes a line that I'm going to read very carefully because it has never failed to make me laugh yet, no matter how often I hear it. Ken Griffey's grotesquely swollen jaw. <laughs> okay, right. I'm all right if they don't sing it. That's, that's good to know. So this uh, this is excellent. This is, this, is, this is really, really good. This is The Simpsons with Celebrities Done Right. They're going to lose their touch with this very badly at some points, but right now they have skillfully deployed a huge ensemble cast of sports people without it seeming tacked on or bloated. It's the very definition of using special guests to create a special episode. Indeed, I think it's fantastic how each one of the baseball players has got their own little quirk. Jose Canseco does the thing where he rescues people. Kim Griffey Jr. really likes brain and nerve tonic for some reason. And, you know, even if they're completely nonsensical, they're all great. Absolutely. The quality of the gags and writing is fantastic. There's some um, some very early Burns is old and likes old things material, which uh, I, I'm a particular fan of. But yeah, it's just uh, just great from start to finish. Even mm -hmm. if you don't know who the people involved are, which I didn't. You, you're a tad more into baseball than me, I understand, Tom. Yeah, it's not quite my era. It, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit before my time, but I do recognize a lot of those players because... I got into baseball when I was a teenage insomniac. So if if anyone else watched baseball on Channel 5 at two in the morning on a Friday night, I'd love to hear from you because it's one of those things where I still need convincing that it existed. Josh Chetwind, this very mild-mannered Canadian, was analysing everything. Roger Clemens was still playing back then. The Rocket Roger Clemens, uh, very good pitcher. Uh, the, the, the San Francisco Giants are, are my team because I've got because I've got family out there. Oh, and, and also all of the old players that Mr. Burns talks about, they all existed, including Mordecai Three Finger Brown, who I believe lost a couple of fingers in a farming incident. And it enabled him to sort of put more spin on the ball because of the fingers he lost. Something like that. Anyway, anyway, anyway he definitely existed. Ah, fantastic. Uh, if only he hadn't been dead, he may well have guest starred. So, uh, mm -hmm. so it will surprise nobody to learn that in the character debut section today, we have various baseballsmen. We have Roger Clemens, a pitcher then playing for the Boston Red Sox. He is the only pitcher in Major League history to record over 350 wins and strike out over 4,500 batters. There is Mike Shosher, a catcher who is then playing for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He went on to manage the Anaheim Angels, who were later the Los Angeles Angels, for 18 years, only stepping down in 2018. Don Mattingly, first baseman for the New York Yankees, unfortunately during their biggest drought of success, meaning that Mattingly never played in the World Series, despite excellent individual achievements. They can't all be happy ones, I'm afraid. Steve Sachs, a second baseman just in the process of moving from the Yankees to the Chicago White Sox should mention this actually aired during the off-season between the 1991 and 1992 seasons. He became known for very basic errors when doing routine throws for a time, which was known as Steve Sachs Syndrome. Ozzie Smith, a shortstop for the St. Louis Cardinals, 15-time All-Star and winner of the Golden Gloves for his position in 13 consecutive seasons. Wade Boggs, 
third baseman for the Boston Red Sox, with an illustrious career in the majors, but a dubious honor in the minor leagues, having played in the longest game in professional baseball history for the Pawtucket Red Sox against the Rochester Red Wings. It lasted for 33 innings over 8 hours and 25 minutes (laughs) on April the 18th and 19th, 1981. Daryl Strawberry, right fielder for the LA Dodgers, won the World Series four times, but unfortunately battled colon cancer towards the end of his career, but also recovered, so that's good. Ken Griffey Jr., outfielder for the Seattle Mariners, a Hall of Famer and a 13-time All-Star. Nearly there. And (laughs) finally, Jose Canseco, outfielder and designated hitter for the Oakland A's, who is a cheating roid monkey who says he's great at martial arts, but lost his only professional MMA bout after slipping over. He also shot himself in the hand in 2014 while cleaning his gum. Some of those players, I'm not sure which ones, so don't ask me, were second choices. And the show was turned down by at least Carlton Fisk, Ricky Henderson, Ryan Sandberg and Nolan Ryan. We'll talk a bit more about some specifics around the players and their performance um, in this episode in the Did You Know section. Otherwise, we wouldn't have one this time. But it's worth quickly getting some general ideas about how this was put together. So... As we've just heard, these nine players played for six different teams rather than seven at the time of recording because Steve Sachs was still a Yankee at that stage. Basically, what they did was come up with the idea. Apparently, that was Sam Simon's idea originally, and then made the pitch to the players. They were pretty sure they wouldn't get a whole team's worth of players. They maybe get three or four or something like that. Can you imagine this episode with three guest stars? You'd lose so much out of it. Mm. Mind you, I trust the writing staff to, to, to pad it ably at this stage. Once they had their nine locked in, they needed to record them, which they did by waiting until each player was in the area for a game. It's obviously not too difficult for the Dodgers players, who were generally just up the road for their home games. But the rest was a bit more of a scheduling problem, as they had to wait for those teams to come and play the LA Dodgers to be able to get them on tape. Players apparently spent about five minutes recording each, and then an hour signing autographs. Although there may have been an exception to that, as we'll find out in a bit. The hardest parts of the experience for the makers of the show were the hypnosis scene, because all the players were recorded separately, and they then had to cut them painstakingly together to make it sound like they all said the same words at the same speed. Plus the character designs. So you'll note that there's a strange middle ground between Simpsons-style designs and -and out-and-out cartoonish caricatures. I think at this early stage, they didn't have the same feel for bringing real people into their world as they do now. Thinking about some later characters that appeared, like, uh, say, Kim Basinger or uh, even Paul McCartney, uh, Elton John. Later on, they're they're recognisable as versions of themselves, but also in The Simpsons. And in this one, I don't think they brought them far enough into The Simpsons. And they they stand out a bit as cartoonish um, grotesques, essentially. Definitely not bad design. But we won't see that kind of design carry on much longer. It sounds like most of the players enjoyed being part of the show. Mike Shosha, especially, uh, seems to be a fan who is genuinely made up to be asked. And Ozzie Smith has said he wants to come back at some stage so he can get his character out of the mystery spot. Canseco, <laughs> um, on the other hand, hated his character design, was described as intimidating. Oh, must be all that martial arts prowess he doesn't have. He said he found the acting very easy and is typically humorless about the whole thing in retrospect, but I'll explain why I think that might be in a minute. I mean, other than being a gassed-up, juiced-out, big-cheating cheat who can't fight his way out of a paper bag, obviously. (laughs) 
We see quite a bit of baseball in The Simpsons, but this is obviously the standout when you think about its use in the show. We already saw Homer as the Isotope's mascot, and he'll get involved again a few times, such as Season 15, Episode 12, Hungry Hungry Homer, where he goes on hunger strike to protest the mayor of Albuquerque's plans to move the Isotopes to his town, and helping Buck Mitchell reignite his marriage in Season 17, Episode 22, Marge and Homer turn a couple play. One of those episodes is good. See if you can guess which one. (laughs) Bart discovers Major League Baseball are illegally spying on US citizens in Season 11, Episode 2, Brother's Little Helper, and has his life ruined by a mistaken Little League game in Season 18, Episode 18, The Boys of Bummer. One of those episodes is good. See if you can guess which one. And in Season 22, Episode 3, Money Bart, Lisa coaches Bart's Little League team using data analysis. I mentioned this not just because of my zest for data analysis, but also because of the guest voice on that episode. None other than Mike Shosha. So, Tom, did you know? Didn't Jose Canseco's storyline seem a bit out of place? He gets heroism, although ridiculous, whereas everyone else's fates are unfortunate or embarrassing. Mm. Well, did you know he was meant to wake up in bed with Mrs. Krabappel, having missed the game? But his then-wife apparently objected. The writers are said to have grudgingly given him the heroic storyline, which is apparent in how sarcastically it reads in retrospect. Grotesquely swollen jaw or not, Ken Griffey Jr. had a lot of trouble nailing his one line. His father, the imaginatively named Ken Griffey Sr., was apparently trying to coach him during the ordeal, which just sounds weird. Don Mattingly was actually told to cut his hair by the then-manager of the Yankees, the amusingly named Stump Merrill, in accordance with owner George Steinbrenner's policy on well-kept hair. Confusingly, this happened in August 1991, which was after the production of this episode, but before the airing of it leading many to think the episode's happenings are a reference to this incident, but it's apparently complete coincidence. And due to the amount of time the episode took to pull together, that is a plausible outcome. Certain scenes in this episode are lifted from two baseball-related films, 1942's Pride of the Yankees and 1984's The Natural. The former has the rail trip to the different stadiums, and the latter has basically everything else. It's got Wonderbat, it's got uh, exploding stadium lights, the whole shebang. And finally, Springfield of Dreams, The Legend of Homer Simpson, is a mockumentary that was made to commemorate both the 25th anniversary of this episode and Homer Simpson's induction into the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. (laughs) It contained interviews with every player who appeared in the episode, except Daryl Strawberry, who was probably still annoyed that he got substituted. (laughs) Tom, I don't think you'll have to look far for memeable moments in this one. Oh, my word. Memeable moments. Well, I've gone for nine, which without even looking it up is definitely a record for this section. That is one for each player as well. One for each ringer. So congratulations there. Mm. Yeah. And and you can argue that there's more, but I've gone for nine stone cold classics. And there's one right off the bat, as it were, which is Homer choking on donuts. So especially that bit where he coughs the donut up. People take that screenshot and just use it to illustrate disgust, basically. That's how ingrained that one is. And then you've got one that appears every football transfer window. In fact, I've, in fact, I saw this just, just the other day and it is applied to Manchester United left back Luke Shaw, uh, because Manchester United have just bought Alex Tellis. You're Alex Tellis. Yes. 
you play left back? Yes, I play left back too. Are you better than me? Well, I've never met you, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Daryl Strawberry in that scene is probably my favourite reading of the word yes I've ever heard. Great. Then you have the hypnosis for number three. You will give 110%. That's impossible. No one can give more than 100%. By definition, that is the most anyone can give. And I've got an example of that, which is a bit close to home, staying on football transfers. So Norwich, my team, Norwich City, recently sold Ben Godfrey to Everton. And in his first interview, he said he would give 110% to Everton. (laughs) And I was so disappointed that a reporter didn't go, that's impossible. No one can give 110%. (laughs) Number four, a very simple one. Good Lord, gigantism. Number five. And I say England's greatest prime minister was Lord Palmerston. Pitt the elder, Lord Palmerston. I was watching a quiz show called The Chase the other day, and the question was, who was the British prime minister whilst Abraham Lincoln was president of the USA? And the answer was Lord Palmerston. So that's a good bit of general knowledge. It's worth noting that that I I don't think that's much of an argument. Lord Palmerston's uh, tenures as UK prime minister were were a, a lot longer and more successful than Pitt the Elders. And yes, I I did have to look that up on the back of this. <laughs> okay. Then number six, Manningly, I thought I told you to get rid of those sideburns. So basically whenever you have and they tend to be Australian rules football players. Whenever you have an athlete with with like a really weird haircut, like like a sort of mullet god wrong type thing. Not that a mullet can go right, but Whenever you see a picture of a sportsman with weird hair, <laughs> that always gets posted. I told you to get rid of those sideburns. <laughs> then at number seven, Daryl. Daryl. <laughs> Daryl. Number eight, and I've only included this one because I've made a meme of it myself. Peanuts, who wants peanuts? Peanuts, 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 peanuts. Now, I did a riff of the Peanuts song from Shooting Stars. This is an absolutely fantastic piece of absurdist comedy. It's from the same series that spawned the baked potato song. Um, at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, Matt Lucas released a version of the baked potato song, which was about keeping your hands clean and stuff. So from that same series, he sang a song where he was dressed as what I can only describe as a 1970s paedophile PE teacher. And he's just going, and he's just going, peanuts, peanuts. And he just corpses. And that's it. (laughs) That's the song. So there's a Peanuts thing. And finally, number nine, we've already talked about it, but the ending song, Talking Softball. Absolute genius. It's just great stuff. Absolutely great. And and I think that the number of of memes that are taken from that just shows you how many magic moments they managed to, to pack into this. Absolutely. It really sticks in people's heads. Speaking of magic moments... I'm guessing there weren't many in Ross Perot's attempt at the presidency. Well, this is actually a much more interesting story than you'd think. So, yeah, for my bit, talking about Ross Perot. So this is the story of the man who came third in both the 1992 and 1996 US presidential elections. He's been lampooned a few times in The Simpsons, as I'm sure we will find out about later. But let's start by taking a look at his early life. Perot was born in the Texan city of Texarkana, a city in the far northeast of Texas. It's a really weird place to look at on the map as it sits right on the Texas-Arkansas border. 
with the border itself running along the appropriately named North State Line Avenue. I mean, I want to go there so I can go, no, I'm in Texas. No, I'm in Arkansas. No, I'm in Texas. Texas, Arkansas, Texas. Here in, here in Texas, we're going to take that kind of crap out. Anyway, Ross Perot was born on June the 27th, 1930, the son of a commodity broker. He was actually given of the first names Henry Ray, but he voluntarily changed his middle name to Ross when he was in his teens in order to honour his father. Kind of nice thing to do. He had a pretty uneventful childhood, getting his first job as a paper boy when he was eight. He joined the Boy Scouts of America, not affiliated with the junior campers, when he was 12, reaching the rank of Eagle Scout just 13 months later. Apparently, Eagle Scout is the highest rank obtainable, and that's about a dozen levels above Pussy Willow. In 1949, Perot joined up with the United States Naval Academy, where he apparently helped establish its honours system. Perot served in the Navy until 1957, spending his time on destroyers and aircraft carriers. Now, Perot's time in the armed forces would go on to shape the rest of his life. He met his future wife, Margot Birmingham, on a blind date while on shore leave in Baltimore. She was a student at Goucher College, a liberal arts college that may or may not have been the inspiration for Goucher College, the elite educational institute attended by Kirk Van Housen. <laughs> There's also this slightly odd story where Perot was shocked to have been given more than one pair of shoes. He called this experience his first encounter with government wastefulness. I mean, oh, I, mean I, I don't consider myself to be a Melda Marcos or anything, but you know, I've got, I've got two plus pairs of shoes. Yeah, yeah. So Perot left the Navy in 1957 and got a job with IBM working as a salesman. He turned out to be pretty good at his job. In one year, he exceeded his yearly sales target in just two weeks. He had a bit of a fiery temper and fell out with the executives over the direction of the company. In 1962, he left IBM and founded his own company, the excitingly named Electronic Data Systems. This is where Perot first really made money. The not-so-stimulating but vital world of data management. Ah, there is nothing more important. Nothing. (laughs) This man is turning into my hero. He has two pairs of shoes and he's in data management. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So as someone who had inside knowledge of IBM, Perot knew that their customers were using their systems inefficiently and that IBM were selling computers to customers who didn't really need them. They just made it. They just needed to make better use of the ones they already had. You know, certainly in jobs I've had, you'll get companies who will just spend a huge amount of money on IT infrastructure when all they need to do is get someone in who knows what they're talking about. So a huge amount. So EDS essentially became the IT department for many companies. But they hit it big in 1967, where they won contracts to manage patient data for the state's Medicare and Medicaid programs. In the same year, their employee, Morton H. Mayerson, proposed the business model known as outsourcing, and EDS's growth became exponential. They expanded into credit unions and insurance companies, and in the late 70s, they tried their hands at finance. They made automated teller machines, otherwise known as ATMs, or hole to wall if you're from Yorkshire, electronic funds transfers, otherwise known as wire transfers, and real-time point-of-sale terminals. In the 1980s, EDS did a deal with the Air Transport Association of America to support payments between travel agencies, and they ran systems for the U.S. military. In 1984, Perot sold EDS to General Motors for a whopping $2.5 billion. With his money, Perot founded Perot Systems in 1988. Their business model was very similar to EDS in that it provided IT infrastructure for various companies and public concerns. The company did very well and was acquired by Dell back in 2009 for $3.9 billion. So Perot was a hell of a businessman. He built companies up and sold them for billions. 
1987, between the sale of EDS and the founding of Perot Systems, Ross Perot became an investor, investing in one person in particular, Steve Jobs. Jobs had just been forced out of Apple and had founded his own company, NEXT, in 1985. Perot invested $20 million and joined the board of directors. NEXT were, of course, instrumental in the world of computing, as Tim Berners-Lee used an NEXT computer as the world's first web server. See episode 19, Dev Webpage Society, for more on that. See how it all links? Nice. So that's Perot the businessman. What about Perot the politician? Well, Perot's early forays into life outside business were suitably military. In 1969, protests against the Vietnam War were arguably at their loudest, with all the flag burners who had too much freedom. Pro wanted to make it easier for policemen to beat them. Well, no, he, he probably didn't think that. What he was, though, was supportive of Richard Nixon, printing 25 million postcards in support of him through his United We Stand organisation. Through this organisation, he organised a plane full of Christmas presents for imprisoned American troops to fly to North Vietnam, along with dozens of their relatives. However, the North Vietnamese authorities refused permission. Undaunted, Perot flew to Bangkok and spent Christmas Day in Laos, just across the border trying to get in there. He still hoped to get the presents to the prisoners via a ridiculously convoluted route that involved going through Moscow. However, he was also denied this when India, at the time an ally of the Soviet Union, refused permission for the plane to use its airspace. Instead, the plane went the other way, flew over the Arctic Circle, had a 12-hour stopover in Anchorage, Alaska, then went on to Copenhagen, the capital of Denmark. After that, the Soviets still wouldn't let the plane fly to Moscow, and Perot gave up and flew home. The debacle cost Perot $1.5 million, but it gave the impression that he had a heart of gold. From then on, Perot frequently spoke up on behalf of imprisoned veterans. In 1979, two of his own staff, Paul Schiaparone and Bill Gaylord, became imprisoned in Tehran following a contract dispute with the Shah's government. Perot hired a rescue team, effectively a band of mercenaries, led by retired U.S. Army Colonel Arthur D. Simons. At first, they were unsuccessful in rescuing the employees, but then the Iranian Revolution happened and the Shah was deposed. Revolutionaries stormed the prison and released everyone who was being held there, all 10,000 of them. The rescue team managed to find the employees, then they bribed their way into Turkey and escaped. These events were written up by Ken Follett in his book On Wings of Eagles. So, Perot was initially a supporter of Ronald Reagan, and in 1986, he pledged $2.5 million to fund his presidential library. However, he then went back on that pledge after a trip to Hanoi and concluded that Reagan wasn't doing enough to help POWs. He also became disillusioned with him following the Iran-Contra affair. See episode 8 for Telltale Nicaraguan Election for a bit more on that. In the run-up to the Gulf War, Perot spoke out against it and urged US senators not to vote for it. Unhappy with what happened, and now in the public eye, Perot considered a presidential run. On February 20th, 1992, the very same day that Homer at the Bat first aired, Perot appeared as a guest on Larry King Live. Pretty much straight away, King asked him if he would run for president, and Perot said no. Towards the end of the show, and desperate for a scoop, King asked him again. Perot relented, saying that if he was put on the ballot in all 50 states, he would run for president. Basically, he didn't want to do all the work himself, and he wanted to know that there were grassroots conservatives out there who would back him. Perot's policies including balancing the federal budget, not raising taxes, and withdrawing from the North American Free Trade Agreement, otherwise known as NAFTA. On March 12th, Perot set up what's called a phone bank. It's a fairly common thing, I understand, in the States, but it's not so well known in these shores. 
Basically, people had a phone number they could call where they could learn more about Perot, and if they wanted to, pledge no more than $5 to his campaign. Basically, Perot didn't want to be bought by anyone, so the most you could give was $5. According to statistics, the phone bank received a million calls over its first 10 days of operation. On the back of the phone bank, draft Perot organisations popped up around the country. These were volunteer-led and funded by Perot's own money. In order to appear on various states' ballots, Perot needed a running mate, and he opted for Vice Admiral James B. Stockdale, a decorated naval man who spent seven and a half years in a Vietnamese internment camp, forced to subsist on a thin stew made of fish, vegetables, prawns, coconut milk, and four kinds of rice. Okay, that last bit probably isn't true. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist that. Anyway, over the course of summer 1992, Perot made numerous appearances on talk shows where he was actually quizzed on his policies. He was interviewed by Katie Couric on the Today Show. Yes, that's for Katie Couric, whom a certain measurement in South Park is named after, where he stated that part of his budget balancing would come from cutting Medicaid for people who, quote, didn't need it. During an episode of Meet the Press, his budget numbers were grilled, and after a heated exchange, he considered dropping out of the presidential race. After that, he hired James Squires, the former editor of the Chicago Tribune, to manage his campaign. That was in April 1992. He appeared on far fewer talk shows after that. By May, and with his image still being managed a lot better, Perot actually started to lead presidential polls in his home state of Texas and in California. He was seen as a political outsider, and his mannerisms were seen as straight-talking and honest by those who were tired of the established parties. In mid-May, people wrote his name onto ballot papers in both the Republican and Democratic primaries in Oregon. So people are getting bits of paper saying, who do you want to vote for? And they're writing in Perot. Did he uh, beat perennial writing candidate Skinner Sucks? <laughs> yeah, I think so. So on May 19th, Perot appeared on a TV show called 2020, where he was interviewed by Barbara Walters. While there, he said some pretty odd things about gay people, saying that he didn't want any serving in his cabinet because they would be too controversial, while adding what people do in their private lives is their business. This is a weird thing to say, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, by June, Perot was still polling pretty well. He remained fairly popular with both Republicans and Democrats, and the Time magazine poll put him on 37%. Then things started to unravel. The Republicans upped the personal attacks, revealing that he had launched a private investigation into the Bush family in the 80s. While on a rally in Olympia, Perot was confronted by a gay rights group and asked about what he'd do about the AIDS epidemic. He flip-flopped on his previous stance and said that he would allow gays in the military and to serve in his cabinet. Following that, he made an address to the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People. That's what it's called. Please don't write angry letters. Perot's speech that he wrote himself fell flat as he kept referring to the people in attendance as you people and your people. The speech went down like a lead balloon. Perot's campaign managers became worried that he wasn't following their advice, and he had other practices like getting his volunteers to sign a loyalty oath. On July 15th, his manager Ed Rollins, who had previously worked for President Reagan, resigned. Perot's poll numbers worsened, and on July 16th, Perot made yet another appearance on Larry King, saying that he was quitting the race for the White House. Despite this, his campaign continued, and he published an economic plan that included raising taxes on gasoline and the wealthy, with the aim of eliminating the budget deficit in five years. Although he was officially out of the race at that point, Perot promised to endorse any candidate who supported his plan. The grassroots support for him continued, and petitions put him on the ballot in all 50 states, just like he had wanted back in February. Therefore, he re-entered the race on October 1st, way behind where he was in the summer. He spent tens of millions of dollars buying airtime on major networks. 
the first of his infomercials aired on October 6th, and it was estimated to be viewed by over 16 million people. In it, he claimed that trickle-down economics wasn't working. Nothing wrong with saying that. No one was taking responsibility for anything, and that the red flag of communism had been replaced by the red ink and red tape of debt and government bureaucracy. Perot participated in debates with Bill Clinton and President Bush, using the platform to attack what he called the giant sucking sound of American manufacturing jobs going to Mexico, where labour costs were much lower. He definitely gave the appearance of an outsider, and personally, I think he sounded like Boomhauer from King of the Hill. <laughs> Especially when you compare him to Bush and Clinton. He's a bit, well, I gotta tell you what, guys, you got. Bit like that. So, according to polling, he won the first debate, getting 37% approval in a poll average. He continued to spend on infomercials, but as election day approached, he was polling at around 20%, still way down from his summer high. The election was held on November 3rd, 1992. And when the dust had settled, Perot emerged with 19,743,821 votes, representing an 18.9% of all votes cast. He didn't carry a single state, and due to the idiosyncrasies of the US electoral college system, he didn't win a single college vote. Of course, the election was won by President Clinton. Although Perot had failed in his bid for the presidency, arguments about his effect on the White House rumble on to this day. Some argue that thanks to Perot, Clinton was much more conservative with his early public spending, resulting in a decrease in the US public debt by the end of the Clinton administration. After the election, Perot remained a prominent figure, but a debate with Al Gore on Larry King Live in 1993 effectively killed his political career, as following it, he was widely mocked for repeatedly saying, let me finish, to Gore and coming across as rather comical. Of course, The Simpsons was no exception in making him a target for their political comedy. Perot would run again in 1996, this time as leader of the Reform Party, a party he founded himself in 1995. The Reform Party has seen members from across the political spectrum, from paleoconservative Pat Buchanan to environmentalist Ralph Nader. Even Donald Trump stood as a member of the Reform Party during his presidential campaign back in the year 2000. How times change. Anyway, back in 1996, Perot was excluded from the TV debates, spent far less money than in 1992, and came away with 8 million votes. Way down on the 1992 figure, but still way more than any third party candidate has achieved since. Politically, Perot's star faded throughout the rest of the 90s. He fought against the internal struggles of the Reform Party and ended up endorsing Republican candidates in subsequent presidential elections. He died quite recently, actually, of leukemia on July 9th, 2019, at the ripe old age of 89. So one thing I want to talk about, does Perot deserved does Perot deserve the slatings he gets from The Simpsons and others? Well, maybe. Well, maybe I don't know enough about him, and I didn't live in America when he was politically active. But as far as I can tell, there were far worse politicians than him. Yes, he was conservative, but he was also pro-choice and pro-gay rights. So did he deserve a seat on that rocket to the sun? Possibly not. But yet, the pro-choice thing, he was a supporter of Planned Parenthood for a long, long time. And back in 2013, Texas Governor Rick Perry remember him, cut funding for Planned Parenthood. The Perot Foundation stepped in, donating a million dollars to keep its centres open. That's a pretty cool thing to do in my book. Oh, definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. And one little thing to finish on. Pro had all the money in the world, but there's one thing he couldn't buy, a dinosaur. Well, he couldn't buy a dinosaur, but there is one named after him. In 2008, the five children of Ross Perot raised $50 million for the Dallas Museum of Nature and Science, they could therefore build a new museum at a place called Victory Park. 
and unsurprisingly, they decided to call it the Perot Museum. In 2011, researchers there discovered a new species of dinosaur, and they named it after him. Pachyrhinosaurus perotorum. I think that's how you pronounce that. So there we are. He's got a dinosaur named after him. Excellent. Yep, it's it's what we all aspire to, isn't it? Having a dinosaur named after us. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. And of course, um, you and I might aspire to be in The Simpsons. Ross Perot has been in The Simpsons. He's, um, I'm going to give a, an honourable mention to a, a, a quick aside from Season 13, Episode 11, The Bart Wants What It Wants. Uh, Bart is in Rainier Wolfcastle's house, and he sees some of the props from his movies, including what is described as the Q-tip he used to kill Ross Perot in The Incredible Shrinking McBain. Um, <laughs> but he is, of course, far more well-known for his two appearances in Treehouse of Horror. Season 11, Episode 4, Treehouse of Horror 10, the segment Life's a Glitch and Then You Die. He's on a rocket being fired into the sun, along with a number of other bad or superfluous celebrities, and also Courtney Love, who I don't think merited her position there. Um, and of course, you know it's coming. Season 8, Episode 1, Treehouse of Horror 7, the Citizen Kang section. It's true, we are aliens. But what are you going to do about it? It's a two-party system. You have to vote for one of us. <laughs> well, I believe I'll vote for a third-party candidate. Go ahead, throw your vote away. And we cut to Ross Perot smashing his Perot 96 hat. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I must admit that is more than I ever expected I would ever know about Ross Perot. And uh, yeah, he sounds like a figure figure worth discussing. A worthy third candidate in a two-party system. Who'd have thunk it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh. definitely, definitely. And he is. And in case anyone's wondering... I don't think Ross Perot was anything like Donald Trump. Ross Perot actually made his money honestly. Um, he had he had some ideas which which were way ahead of his time, and it's stuff we take for granted now. You know, we take ATMs for granted. We take buying stuff at a shop with a credit card for granted. We take IT departments for granted. And you know, he was he was at the forefront with all that stuff. Absolutely. And Donald Trump is at the very what's the opposite of the forefront? Ah, never mind. I'll look it up for next time. <laughs> Until then, don't forget you can find us at retrospectacus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review any way you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. <laughs>